Today on Blue 58, it's time to talk cornerbacks. This position group is a bit odd for the Packers because they're both basically set and in need at the same time. Fortunately, there is value to be had in this year's draft class. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. Cornerback. It's been a bit of a bugaboo for the Packers for a while. We all know their long-running issues dating back to basically the transition from Charles Woodson to Charles uh, to Sam Shields and Tremont Williams uh, to everything that happened after that. Casey Hayward, Micah Hyde, Demarius Randall, Quentin Rollins. The Packers basically just kept spending resources at that position and missing or misevaluating guys on the way out the door. Until they finally got it right. Now. I guess you could even throw Josh Jackson in there uh, if you want to talk about the litany of things that did not go so well uh, for the Packers at corner. But now they have Jair Alexander. Now they have Rasul Douglas. Now they have Eric Stokes. And now it seems like, by and large, they're pretty set at corner on the outside. Other than a Jair Alexander extension, the Packers are basically set with all their outside guys, and could be set inside too, depending on what you want out of Jair Alexander. My suspicion is that the Packers are going to be rotating those top three guys a lot just to take advantage of matchups, but it does seem like there is a need for a guy whose specialty is playing the inside. For the past couple years, that's been Chandon Sullivan, and we got some diminishing returns at that position too. In theory, Shamar Jean Charles, or John Charles, depending on which pronunciation you go with, is the next man up there. But I'm not super sold on him. Uh, I think he was a good draft pick, more or less, given some of his pedigree stuff. As a guy whose specialty is playing inside, he made a lot of plays on the ball at Appalachian State. But he's not a tremendous athlete, and he's very small. But other than him, there's really no other obvious option as the full-time inside corner guy. And just to throw another log on the fire of your consideration, the Packers could probably use another guy who's a big special teamer. They've had some serious turnover there over the past couple years too. Isaac Yadam is gone. Uh, Kadar Holman is gone. Even Josh Jackson is gone. They need a guy who's going to put up some reps on special teams. So we got to find us a corner. So how do we find a corner? My methodology for sorting through this year's cornerback class has changed slightly, partly out of, out of self-preservation. This year, for looking at corners, I only want to include in our evaluation, at least on the podcast, guys who have a relative athletic score of 8 or above. That falls into the elite athleticism category. Now, obviously, there are guys that are going to get consideration from teams and from the Packers outside of that, and I I fully understand that. But corner is just such a body-heavy position that there is not really a reason to to look at everybody because you're going to be driving yourself crazy because a lot of these guys can't play at the NFL level. So I figure if we're going to start just narrowing things down a little bit, let's start by talking about the guys who are just the the most elite athletes. And I did, you know, I do want to mention we would have missed a guy like Shamar Jean Charles uh, if we did this last year. 
and I think that's fair. I'm going to go back and fill in a lot of the the other data as well, just so we have it on some of the non-elite athlete guys. But in terms of our podcast consideration, I just want to, if, when we're tearing the guys out, I just want to talk about the guys that are that are elite athletes. Beyond that, there are two thresholds that I look at. Pro football focuses coverage grade for a guy's final season in college. We do just look at the final season because unless you pony up a significant amount of money, more money than makes it worth it, you can't see grades beyond their final year, at least at the level that I'm at with PFF. And then ball hawks, uh, that number that just combines a guy's sacks, interceptions, passes defensed, and fumbles, fumbles forced, uh, plays on the ball. Our tiers are broken down thusly. First tier is just for guys that are uh, in the top, at the top of the heap in terms of both coverage grade and ball hawk. So the the thresholds, the cutoffs we use there are a pro football focused coverage grade of 70 or more and 25 or more ball hawks over your your college career. We want guys that are are making a lot of plays on the ball or have made a, a moderate amount of plays on the ball over a long period of time. So top tier is hitting both of those those benchmarks. Second tier is coverage grade only. Coverage grade has been shown over time to be a, a pretty stable indicator of, of long-term success. I figure if you can cover it at a high level or a high enough level that you're you're ranked pretty highly here, it's it's at least worth considering you among the the higher achievers in in all of, of college football and one of the guys that we should be taking a closer look at. And then finally, guys that just hit the ball hawks figure. I figure there are some some drawbacks to being a guy who makes a lot of plays on the ball. And oftentimes you will see a guy who makes a lot of plays on the ball just because the ball is coming his way a lot. And why is the ball coming his way a lot? It's because quarterbacks feel like they've got an opportunity there if um, if they throw in your direction. And this is something we'll often see in um, in the NFL, especially when you've got two cornerbacks uh, on an NFL team, and one guy is significantly better than the other, he just won't end up with a lot of opportunities for interceptions or passes defense just because offenses are always trying to look where he isn't. Jair Alexander in 2019 is a pretty good example of that. Had a good, solid season that year, and teams just tried to stay away from him and find other places to throw the ball. 2020 kind of worked out that way, too. Uh, maybe even more so with Kevin King and Josh Jackson opposite of Jair Alexander. We all know how that worked out in the NFC Championship game. Uh, Tom Brady just had to look where Jair Alexander wasn't, and he found opportunities in the Packers' secondary targeting, well, Kevin King and Chandon Sullivan. So that's the reason I put that as the the Tier 3 sort of thing. If you're just making plays on the ball, it doesn't necessarily mean you're bad, but I would rather have the coverage grade ahead of that. Overall, I would say some moderate misgivings about this particular draft class. Cornerback is a lot like offensive line. It's hard to really evaluate a guy from a statistical perspective. At least with corner, there are more stats that you can actually look at uh, than offensive line, at least from a layman's perspective. Unless you want to grind tape on every single one of these guys, it's it's tough to get the full picture. That's why we lean on things like coverage grade and stuff like that. By and large, there are not just tons of high-end athletes in this class. And I think that's the most concerning thing that I've I've discovered about this draft class. 
uh, if you look at the entire list of, of prospects um, sourcing from the, the raw list provided by CBS Sports, they have 44 names in their top 400. Of those 44, only 18 put up a relative athletic score of 8 or better. Okay, you say that's that's a pretty high bar you're using there, John, and that's totally correct. Eight, just looking at the elite guys, is a high bar. But if you expand it out to seven, that's considered above average, you still only have 21 in the class. There aren't just a lot of above average to elite athletes among cornerback in this, um, among this cornerback class. There's a bunch of guys we don't have uh, testing numbers on, and that's, that's fair. Uh, Ahmad Gardner, for instance, uh, out of Cincinnati, we don't have have numbers on him, so I didn't even bother bother looking at the other stuff. He'd probably be a tier two guy if I had to guess. He's one of the best prospects in the class, especially at six foot three. But we'll go back and fill in some of that stuff later for for the the online write up about this position. If the Packers were in the in a position to draft him, they they probably should, um, just because that that seemed like it's probably a really great value. But by and large, we're looking for prospects here, and among the prospects that we have, not just a ton of overall phenomenal athletes. Nevertheless, we do do have two guys who met both of the thresholds in addition to being elite athletes. And I want to talk more broadly about what this says about the process here after we've talked through these guys. First and foremost uh, is Tariq Castro-Fields out of Penn State. Six feet tall, 197 pounds, 9.74 relative athletic scores, coverage grade his final season, as a Nittany line, 70.8, 30 ball hawks uh, on his career. I like that he's basically the full package. If you look at his career accomplishments, you look at his athletic testing numbers, he's done a little bit of everything. But while he's done a little bit of everything, he doesn't necessarily seem great at anything. He got on the field pretty early because he's a phenomenal athlete, and I think he piled up just a lot of kind of accumulation stats over time as a result, which leads to the big ball hawks number. And he might be the perfect example for why getting a ton of ball hawks isn't always a good thing. You do have to get thrown at a lot to have just, for instance, 25 passes defense like he did. It's good that he did that, but I wonder if it's a lot like the um, the contested catches thing that we talked about with wide receivers. Yes, making contested catches is great, but should it be something you look at as a primary attribute or more a more secondary thing that you can do kind of as well? Overall, I would say he reminds me of a Kadar Holman type. He's got some traits, he's got some productivity, but how much do you really trust him as a player? Maybe he was just in a really great circumstance and happened to be an elite athlete, and that's why he put up some good numbers. I think there are some reasons for some, some misgivings there. Next up is Zion McCollum out of Sam Houston State. He is the second of our two guys who who hit all the things we're looking for. Six foot two, 199 pounds, a relative athletic score of an even 10. Really, really good. Coverage grade of 79.1. Get ready for this. Ball Hawks, 74.5. More than 50 passes defensed in his career at Sam Houston State. You want small school domination, you got it in Mr. McCollum. I wondered why he ended up at Sam Houston State. A lot of guys, you know, they start off as big-time recruits and they end up, you know, failing out of school, grade-related reasons, dismissed for disciplinary reasons, just not a good fit. They want to play at a smaller school. That was not it for him. He has a twin brother named Tristan, also in this draft class, and they wanted to play together. And after verbally committing together to Utah, 
they decided that they wanted to play at Sam Houston State, and that is why Mr. McCullum ended up there playing with his brother. There's nothing really I don't like about Zion McCullum. He looks like a potential mid-round steal. Uh, last year, the guy that was kind of along these lines, not even a small school guy, was Paulson Adebo at a Stanford, and I think people just kind of overthought it with him. He's just... Uh, you start worrying about things that are not super big issues like, oh, is he so tall? Is he going to be flexible? Does he have agility? Super big athletes that, you know, can play a position like this, you should probably value. And small school caveats aside, this guy has a lot of really desirable traits. Great size, great speed, great athleticism. He's playing really, really well. And if I'm looking at a comp for him, the name that I couldn't shake as I was looking at him, watching him play, was Sam Shields. Relatively unheralded player, but a lot of good traits. And for a different reason than Mr. McCollum, he faced a pretty steep learning curve coming into the NFL. He was changing positions. McCollum doesn't have that um, rough start ahead of him, but he is going to take uh, face a pretty big jump in competition, and that, I think, is reason to be somewhat concerned at least a little bit. But if you're going to bet on potential... Betting on a guy like him seems like a pretty pretty good idea. Now, I want to take a second and pause here because there are a bunch more prospects that kind of missed the cut here. And I wonder, just as I look at this, this process that we've gone through looking at guys, if we're finding guys that are just by necessity good but not necessarily great. If we're looking at a, a few different thresholds and guys that meet all of them, but maybe just barely, are we finding guys that are kind of just well-rounded but not exceptional at any one thing? Would it be better to be just exceptional at something and then work backwards from there? I don't really know, but I think it's worth mentioning that this process that we use to evaluate guys is constantly evolving. I'm constantly tweaking it, constantly looking at, at different ways to do some things, and um yeah, this is where we're at with the with the corner class this year. Kind of along those lines, let's talk briefly about who's missing. Tier two um, includes some really, really good guys and some potentially really good names. Um, the guys that had that high relative athletic score and also uh, the pro football focus coverage grade of 70 or better include Kyler Gordon out of Washington. We'll talk more about him in a second. Trent McDuffie, also out of Washington. Alante Taylor of Tennessee. Martin Emerson out of Mississippi State. Cam Taylor-Britt out of Nebraska. And a Caleb Evans out of Missouri. We're also missing Derek Stingley off of this list, who's considered one of the very best players overall in this class. Why does he not make Tier 1 or Tier 2? Well, if you look at the balance of his college career, I think you can argue fairly, though you may be, you know, nitpicking a little bit, that he got worse every college season. He had a phenomenal season as a as a freshman in 2019. Was a little bit better, or a little bit worse, excuse me, in 2020. Though you give, give him a little bit of a pass because of the COVID season. And then was not great to start 2021 and then ended his season due to a foot injury. I think there are reasons to be concerned about the overall package here especially given that, that his coverage grade was in the 60s, which is not terrible, but not great. Um, 
I'm glad the Packers aren't in a position where they're, they're probably going to be looking at drafting him because I would have some reservations if they did. Now, more broadly, we should talk specifically about some slot guys. Philosophically, I'm starting to wonder if you're better off looking at college safeties that can play corner if you're trying to find a guy who's going to play in the slot in the NFL. Because you're never really going to be jamming up a guy on the line of scrimmage. You're going to be playing in space anyway. So why not find a guy whose entire deal has been playing in space, like a safety, and uh, just see if you can make him work as a corner? That is the the reasoning that led the Packers to playing Demarius Randall at corner, but there were a lot of, I think, extenuating factors too. With that pick, one of the biggest being that that 2015 draft class was just generally not very good. Um, So I don't know if that's a knock against the process there specifically. That said, there is one corner that I think is worth mentioning as a potential um, slot option for the Packers. Pro Football Focus's top 10 corners in this year's class includes three guys, includes three guys who have extensive slot experience. And I think the best fit there is Kyler Gordon out of Washington. Six feet tall, 194 pounds, relative athletic score of 969. His coverage grade, his final season as a Husky, was 89.6 and had 15 ball hawks. I like pretty much everything about him as a prospect. There are a bunch of guys with relative athletic scores of eight or more and um, coverage grades of 70 or more, but he might be the best of that bunch. He's right there at the top if he's not. He just didn't make a ton of plays on the ball, and if you're looking for a guy who can play the slot and has a ton of versatility, he's a great athlete, this might be your guy. He is, however, a bit of a late bloomer. He wasn't a starter until his fourth year at Washington, lost his starting, lost the opportunity for a starting job, actually, to his teammate, Trent McDuffie, who's also a pretty highly regarded corner, who can play a little bit inside, too. He's primarily, I think, an outside guy. Um, obviously, he played pretty well when he got on the field, but not coming along quickly gives me a little bit of pause because of how often just exceptional athletes end up on the field in college football, and he certainly does appear to be that. Overall, I think he's a really good prospect, though. And he reminds me a little bit of a bigger Jair Alexander. Twitchy, fast, aggressive, one of those Jack Russell Terrier-type corners just going to annoy you to death if he gets the opportunity. That is Kyler Gordon to me. The other two guys that Pro Football Focus mentions among their top corners uh, with slot experience are Daxton Hill of Michigan and Jalen Petre out of Baylor. And this is where I start to wonder about the idea of um, finding a college safety you think can project a corner and then trying to make it work from there. Because I think both Hill and Petre are going to end up at safety in the NFL and actually played a lot of safety type stuff at both of their college college um, programs. Petre in particular, I think, fits the mold of a guy who, who could play safety or slot corner. Reminds me a lot of a super duper version of Micah Hyde. What is he really, other than just a, a really successful football player with, with great instincts and uh, some, some really good athleticism? We will talk more in depth about both of these guys and their potential to project to the Packers as a, a potential just defensive chess piece uh, in our next episode when we take a look at safety. Uh, but for right now, I think that's, that's where we're going we're gonna to call it good. There are a lot of, of pretty decent options in this draft class. Uh, the further down the draft you go, you're still going to find some guys that have some really, really admirable attributes. Uh, you just have to to find out how you're going to use them. So 
Figuring out how to do that could be a bit of a challenge, but that's that's just the way things go, and that's the job of of Joe Barry and Brian Gutekunst and, and all the coaches and, and people they've got working in Green Bay, um, finding the good guys and then figuring out how the pieces all fit together. So I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you listening in. I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that we are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.